Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Okay, good afternoon. I'm Marty Edelman. I'm chair of the Department of Hematology and Oncology and deputy director for clinical research at the uh, Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. On this special episode of the Lung Cancer Considered podcast, I'm joined by Drs. Leora Horn and Solange Peters, the IASLC members and lung cancer experts from the United States and Europe. We will be discussing COVID-19 with regard to lung cancer patients and draw on their experiences, results, and actions in their different settings within the world. Dr. Leora Horn is the Ingram Associate Professor of Cancer Research at Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center and Clinical Director for the Thoracic Oncology Program. Dr. Solange Peters is a Professor and Chair of Thoracic Oncology at University Hospital of Lausanne and current President of the European Society for Medical Oncology. Thank you to both of you for making time during this pandemic to talk to us about lung cancer patients and how the current pandemic affects them, as well as the practice of medicine and what you are doing um, at your institutions and some perspectives on how you view things nationally and, and the differences between the United States, Europe, and Asia. Questions will focus on treatment decisions for lung cancer patients in the COVID-19 environment and specific decisions that we are making for our patients. And we're also interested in uh, discussing patterns of what you're doing to keep both yourselves uh, and your patients safe and uh, with the various confinements uh, sane. We'd also like to speak about TeraVault uh, and any other studies and how these have changed practice of lung cancer care. Solange, why don't you start and tell us uh, how are things going in Switzerland? Has the uh, pandemic peaked there? Yeah, thanks a lot for welcoming us and, uh, and having the opportunity to discuss the differences. Uh, I guess in Europe, we have been facing some, I would say, challenges in having the things happening very fast. I remember in Switzerland, the jump we made from some cases identified to what we call the the third phase of an epidemic, meaning that uh, we passed the time where you could still contain or control, but we just needed to protect the weakest and minimize kind of the damage. So it was fast. It was probably earlier than the US and uh, very rapidly had to challenge our flexibility and the adoption of new rules, new ways of working and the daily the daily life, right? So all Switzerland was confined in something like two weeks. And uh, with some disparities uh, um, between regions, the French part being the worst, uh, but everything was confined. Nobody went to work at that time. The schools are closed, the shops are closed. And um, I must say the epidemic went down quite fast. So it's now, for example, in my institutions, four days, that I have not seen a new uh, cancer patient COVID positive because I follow all of them and I call all of them with my team every day. So it's four days in the whole region, there's not a single cancer patient being affected. This led to this decision probably something like four to five weeks after the initial closure to reopen everything quietly and progressively since next week. So next week, the schools start again, and some economic activities are starting again. Of course, we're a little anxious because 
things go so fast and we all know about the risk of second wave. But I must say, at least we know that when people stay at home and when the system is flexible, it can be controlled. So, Leora, how are things going in Nashville? Um, I actually don't know very much about the dynamics of the pandemic there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the U.S. is almost like 50 countries in one, right, with each state having very, very different experiences. So we prepared for a peak, but we never really saw it. Or I should say we've never we haven't seen a peak that's overwhelmed the medical system the way it did in New York and out in California. Out here, Nashville itself is still closed, but Tennessee as a state has opened in phase one, where certain businesses are allowed to be open. So if I wanted to go to a restaurant, I could drive 10 miles and go and have a sit-down dinner. But if I stay in my area that is still not allowed at this time, we still have a rising number of cases. And this morning, there were 150 new cases reported yesterday in Davidson County. And um, our mayor has said until there's around 80 new cases a day, they won't be opening up our county. Now, a lot of those new cases that we're seeing are in the homeless population. There was a shelter where several um, people tested positive. I think it was four or five people one day and the next day, a week later, there were 160 new cases, which is sort of what we're seeing with COVID globally, where there's a lot of asymptomatic carriers and rapid spread. Our cancer patients, we haven't had a lot of patients who have tested positive for COVID, thankfully. We've switched to a lot of telemedicine and seeing patients from afar. But as of last week, our clinics were pretty much back up to 80% capacity. People are coming back in. What we have seen with lung cancer, probably a little more than some of the other tumor types, is we're seeing fewer new patients. That's because bronchoscopies have been delayed, um, surgeries have been delayed due to COVID. But as of last week, that was allowed in the States once again. And so um, we're expecting to see many patients who are waiting. We're expecting to see those patients showing up in our clinics. So let me get to a you know an interesting management question, which is, you know, it's we're now several weeks into this, and you know, at the beginning, everybody wondered what would happen with the patients who get infected with COVID nineteen, and we'll get to the Terravolt study in a bit. But you know, the question now in a lot of places is, well, what do you do? When can you potentially resume therapy, or you know, in a patient who say? has had COVID-19. So, Leora, if let's say you have a patient who has non-small cell lung cancer and, you know, they, they got an infection and maybe it was, you know, mild to moderate, they were sick for a week or two, and now they've recovered, what does Vanderbilt require or have they formally required, you know, any testing or waiting period before, say, reinitiating treatment? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So some of it depends on the type of therapy that they're on, whether it's cytotoxic therapy versus something like a checkpoint inhibitor. The way that our institution is working right now is any patient who's a new start for therapy is getting COVID tested, regardless of the type of therapy that they're having. And they really left that on a disease site level. So for example, a breast cancer patient who's about to start an aromatase inhibitor does not have to have COVID testing. But if someone's coming into the infusion clinic for any systemic therapy, we are doing testing a couple of days before. Our results come back in around six to 12 hours, depending on the urgency of how the test is ordered. And then we can call the patient and say, you can come in for the therapy. 
For patients who are on therapy, what we're doing, I haven't had a lung cancer patient personally, but there's been some in our GI group and our head and neck group, um, is that after they have recovered from their symptoms, we're bringing them in to retest them. And once their swab is negative, then we're resuming the therapy that they're on. It's also hard and it depends, you know, if you're on therapy where we're going for cure, we could be harming our patients by delaying radiation or delaying chemotherapy in a small cell patient, for example, or a patient with locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer. For a patient with metastatic disease where the goal of therapy is prolonged survival and quality of life, we probably are not harming their quality of life or their survival by delaying their therapy for a few weeks to allow them to be fully recovered. But we do have really great leadership and a, a plan in place for implementing this testing where our patients are actually getting their swabs done in the clinic. So for the decisions that are being made for the types of patients or those coming from disease site leaders, say thoracic oncology versus GU, or did that come from the health system? Did it come from your division or department chair? So it, it's a little bit of both. For any patient who's having an invasive procedure, so a biopsy or bronchosurgery, that's really been on an institutional level where a patient having a bronchoscopy will get a COVID test 48 hours before. Now, we know the problem is the tests are not 100% accurate. We also know that a patient may test negative one day and be positive the next day. So they're, they're also doing symptom screening the day of the procedure. For patients starting on cytotoxic therapies, they've left that at the discretion of the disease team leaders. And, you know, I had a discussion with our lung group, you know, talking about who we should and shouldn't test. As a group, we made a decision right now, many of our patients on tyrosine kinase inhibitors, we're doing telehealth visits, they're getting remote scanning. So we're not testing those patients at any time, even at the start of therapy. Sometimes we don't have their molecular and we're calling them and saying, this is what you have, we're shipping your drug to you. So a patient like that would not get a COVID test. If a patient's coming in for chemotherapy, though, we are requiring that they have COVID testing either locally before they come to Vandable, or they'll come to Vandable to have their test done go home and come back a few days later for um, starting therapy. Okay. Solange, how about you? You know, you, you've certainly had more experience than either of us, just so you're aware at Fox Chase, we're a COVID negative facility. So I sort of, by definition, none of my patients uh, have, I'm certainly not taking care of anybody who is actively infected. And so far to my, I, I think I've had one patient, but happens to be on an ALK inhibitor who's been infected, but was not hospitalized here. But how do you deal with the patient who has had a COVID infection and has now recovered from the acute infection? Do you require testing? Do you have a specific time interval before you could resume treatment? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we all, as oncologists, whatever structure you work in leaves the same experience of trying to keep your hospital, your cancer center, or your service COVID-free. So here we are in a general hospital. So it's a huge hospital where general internal medicine and all the specialties are mixed in a hospital. But of course, we have been putting some triage stations in front of uh, every services, outpatient services, to be sure that at least in my oncology center, somebody with fever or with cough would not, en will, would not enter without being tested. It worked quite well. I had not a single collaborator to date who got infected and no story of contamination in my uh, department and service. However, of course, patients have to move to a hospital where they might meet some COVID patients. So we have the same policy about testing that uh, was described by Leoha. 
with uh, this kind of freedom for every specialty and every specialist, disease specialist, to decide what they consider as being an intervention which mandates uh, a test before starting the intervention. We also do hemato-oncology and, for example, every intensive regimen of chemo is probably something which might question a, a previous testing, of course, every invasive procedure, and still we struggle and we don't know if uh, carboplatin, permetrexed, and an immunotherapy requires or not the previous testing. Based on big series and registries which are now being published one after the other one, being international, national, one center, multi-center, what looks to comes out is what we suspected is true. Cancer patients are at higher risk to get the disease, probably because of exposure and some immune weakness, but also at higher risk of complication. But what also comes out, it doesn't look to be related significantly to the treatment which is delivered. What I mean here is probably the condition of being a cancer patient with everything what it means in terms of treatment obligations, venues, but also in terms of decisions, whatever happens to you makes your scenario a little more at risk. But nobody has convinced me today that a platinum-based chemo, an ALK inhibitor, or a PEMBRO, even NIPINIVO, would change the risk significantly. So what I mean here is when you consider, and to go back to your question, to deliver a treatment, the most important question is not so much about the COVID risk, it's the reason why you deliver the treatment. Is the treatment very important in providing benefit, benefit in quality of life, maybe long-term benefit, and how much delaying it, because we don't know how long COVID will last, and it can be for months, uh, how long um, not delivering it or delaying it, my, how much it could affect your patient. And the magnitude of benefit you expect from your intervention is the most important paradigm beyond, I would say, the COVID. Our structures are clean. Our professionals can protect the patients. So if you have an important intervention to propose, you should propose it. There's nothing worse than imagining adding a pure oncological mortality on the COVID infection. So for our patients, what we probably consider as being rules, for outpatients, you need almost, at least, sorry, 14 days since the diagnosis and the complete absence of symptoms before restarting a treatment of any kind. It's a short duration, but we never saw any rebound of infection symptoms doing that. So we don't even retest. We consider 14 days and at least 48 hours without symptoms. For the inpatients, it's a little difficult, more difficult because of the environment. The hospital wants 30 days before somebody can go to a normal room. Otherwise, before at least the patient will be confined to a COVID section of the hospital during 30 days. But again, treatment decision is about the magnitude of benefit you expect. And, and oncology has a very strong standards of care in that regard. Yeah, so, you know, interesting. And, you know, both of you sort of touched on it, but you know, we've seen some preliminary data. There's going to be some that was a couple of papers presented at ACR. I'm sure there'll be more at ASCO. And, you know, let's talk a little bit maybe about uh, TerraVault, Leora, and, you know, probably one aspect of this, which is 
have we seen any evidence that any specific treatments for lung cancer, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, has any interaction other than the fact that lung cancer patients fit into every you know, group as far as the demographics for serious complications from COVID? Yeah, so the, the original data set, the first 200 patients on TerraVault was presented last week by Marina Garasino at ACR. And while we didn't find that patients are on immunotherapy or chemotherapy or chemo and immunotherapy combos were at higher risk for um, prolonged hospitalization, which was defined at eight days or longer, or were at higher risk of death, the only thing we did find is that the patients on tyrosine kinase inhibitors had a decreased risk of hospitalization or death. Um, that may fall into the fact that those are more likely your never smokers or your younger patients. However, when we did look in univariate analysis at sort of age and smoking status, those didn't seem to be complicating factors for risk of admission or prolonged hospitalization. Did you have any data on obesity? That seems to be emerging as a major problem and you know risk for a risk factor for complications that actually we do have data on the patient's bmis and Mm -hmm. so um, that is data that'll be coming out at asco Um, since aacr we now have data on another 200 patients so the data set for asco will include 400 patients the initial data set that we had were primarily european patients because europe got hit hard and it got hit first with the pandemic and so this second data set does include some patients from the United States, from South America, from Mexico. Um, And so we will have um, that data presented um, at ASCO. What we've also got, which will be presented at a later meeting, hopefully ESMO, is all the lab values on their patients, because there's some interesting data coming up there as well. And so um, as sites continue to, you know, a lot of patients in these data sets are still have ongoing infections, so we don't know their final outcome. And so um, hopefully by ESMO, we're going to have even more data, including a lot of the laboratory correlates on these patients. So Solange, you know, any thoughts regarding the specific therapeutics and, you know, any negative interactions other than the, you know, really the demographic ones, which are people on TKIs tend to be, you know, overwhelmingly the never smokers and, you know, generally a younger, fitter population. You know, so do you feel, you know, there was some early concerns regarding immunotherapy or, you know, uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy? Very interesting question. You know, we have learned lots of things through this COVID pandemic. And one is to be flexible and to adapt very fast. But unfortunately, we also try to create uh, evidence data and be very suspicious about everything as fast as possible. And it's quite interesting to potentially move quietly through potentially a little more conservative behavior concerning and regarding our standards of care. I remember in the beginning how much we were frightened to add a neutropenia to the potential COVID infection, while we all know that for a viral infection, somehow a neutropenia would not so much affect the outcome of a a viral infection. We are very afraid that uh, inhibiting the PD-1 or PD-L1 pathway would be something which might potentially give rise to a higher cytokine kind of storm, secretion, and reaction. All things which are very theoretical. And now we 
through these databases, through you've seen probably many series from big uh, New York centers, we have not been able to confirm that. I even heard, and it will make you smile, uh, last week that some investigators now consider that chemotherapy might be protective because by inhibiting <laughs> the immune system, the cytokine storm might potentially not happen. So, you know, we move through uh, hypotheses, which are all true, right? Uh, at, the, at the time being, the lack of evidence that any treatment intervention does really affect. And remember the new thought about how much the COVID might affect more than anything the, the vessels, the endothelium. So maybe we can go back to two considerations. First of all, potentially what counts is the, the other comorbidities of your patient, probably more then the treatment he receives, so obesity might be one, diabetes might be one, and all the cardiovascular kind of spectrum of diseases. On the other hand, of course, cancer patients are, are affected by a weakness in general, meaning that potentially and without wanting to accuse the system, they might benefit from slightly different intervention when they are sick, which makes potentially some delay, maybe also some less intensive kind of a strategy to be adopted, whatever happens. So I think two paradigms, the comorbidity and the cancer itself, before really accusing a specific modality of treatment, I would say. And that's what we know today. Maybe tomorrow we'll find a new theory, right? But I, I oh no, I have many epinevo patients. They had COVID, many, maybe 15, but none of them had specific costs under epinevo, for example, right? Let's move with evidence. Yeah, no, it's, I, I think it was, oh, I think Fadlo Curry always used to say, always does say, you know, that uh, nothing kills a good hypothesis better than data. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because I remember, you know, early on in all of this, there were a lot of concerns around immunotherapy and should we continue immunotherapy? And, you know, I think very, you know, myelosuppressive chemotherapy was of concern. And then, you know, there are concerns regarding, well, radiation causes lymphopenia and lymphopenia occurs with COVID. You know, and, and so far, I haven't seen anything that really pans out from that. Clearly, uh, it does seem that obesity seems to be a major issue, and, and that may relate to inflammation. So, uh, you know, there's clearly a lot of issues that come down to, you know, in, inflammatory response and the sort of this late severe pneumonitis that occurs and is frequently fatal in these patients that, and, and also what seems to be to be a thrombogenic effect as well. Uh, that's kind of interesting um, and, uh, you know, seems to be present in a lot of patients. So, yeah, the biology of this disease is is emerging rather rapidly. But, you know, while we're on the subject of therapeutics, you know, one thing that may be a positive outgrowth of all of this, and I'm wondering, uh, Leora, how this was handled at Vanderbilt or how you're handling it, is the idea of going to less frequent infusions of the antibodies. You know, just a few days ago, the FDA approved Pembro as an every six-week drug. Many of us have switched Derva to every four weeks. Have you had any, have you been doing that, you know, to decrease the number of patient visits? And uh, have you had any pushback from, you know, administrators or insurers? No, you know, we really haven't had pushback from administrators. In the U.S., unlike other countries, I think that we always get pushback from insurers you know, it, it's interesting because the FDA denied that approval previously. And, you know, now we have that approval and should we be giving that or, we, or, or are we putting our patients at risk because of 
higher complications or immune-related adverse events going to every six weeks. I don't know. But for things like Dervalumab, we, we are doing four weeks. Um, for It was a reason before to use Nivolumab, although granted it's not used as often because it was a four-week dosing rather than the pembrolizumab or atezolizumab that was every three weeks. I think what we can also learn from this even more importantly in going forward is trial design and trial opening. You know, it's incredible how quickly COVID has trials have opened around the globe. You know, you're hearing all the time about protocols being written in a week and approval from the FDA and companies in a week, there's a new trial and a new option for treatment of COVID. Well, as COVID hopefully subsides, cancer remains a pandemic. And so, you know, it will be nice to see, can we start opening trials in shorter amounts of times at different institutions and get rid of some of the bureaucracy that's involved in trial starts for, for cancer patients? Um, I think that'll be an interesting lesson. The other thing is how frequently patients have to come for study visits. We're suddenly allowed to do a lot of study visits on telemedicine and we can get local labs and no, it is not required that you have to order magnesium every time a patient comes to clinic. And so I think that those are important things to think about moving forward as this subsides for, for other treatments and other trials for, for patients globally. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think that this is really pointed out and uh, several things that all of us have known and have grumbled and complained about and have gotten pushback from companies and CROs, which is sort of the needless bureaucracy in activating studies. You know, you have the preparatory visit before they come in and the visit to prepare for the preparatory visit then the initial visit and, you know, on and on and on. And, and then these, uh, what I call the well baby checks, you know, the patient would get the drug and then where you could call them and, you know, say, how are you feeling good? And that would be that, oh no, they have to come in and get a full physical and, you know, and it's, it just was kind of crazy, and it is interesting how rapidly things were able to be activated, contracts executed to get uh, studies open. But I think it's also had the spillover to our oncology trials where, you know, after some initial pushback from the corporate world, they very quickly adapted to reality that we really didn't need a lot of these extra visits. And, you know, like you said, the labs that are frequently unnecessary, you know, why we need to have an EKG done, you know, here and then there and two sets of labs that you can sign. And I, I think the fact that somehow or other the world did not end with that is, is, is kind of important. So, you know, Leora, you know, we've gone over TerraVolt. Why don't you explain the mechanism of TerraVolt? You know, how is that? Uh, it, clearly, it's been going well. It sounds like you have over 400 patients worth of data and, you know, from numerous countries. Um, you know, so it sounds like this has already become a success. Uh, describe a little bit about uh, uh, the process there. Sure. So, you know, TerraVolt started on a weekend when Marina Garasino sent about 50 of us an email saying, you know, what's going on in Italy is, is terrible and, you know, we need to collect data on our lung cancer patients and understand what's happening to them. And they were in the middle of the pandemic and we were kind of sitting here, not twiddling our thumbs, but almost um, clinics quieter. And, you know, we said, well, hey, we can set up this database and let's email everybody to join. And so Solange and Heather Wakely were amazing in joining our steering committee and sort of helping advocate and get the word out there. We got endorsements very quickly from ISLC and from ESMO on TerraVault. And 
we basically have opened this to the world and have said that you know you know you need local IRB approval, but what we'd like to do is capture data on all patients with thoracic malignancies. So we're including mesothelioma, carcinoids, thymomas, and thymic carcinomas in addition to small cell and non-small cell, and really un understand the impact of COVID-19 infection both on patient outcomes as well as future cancer therapy. What makes us a little bit unique from the other databases that are out there is that we are able to track our patients and we're able to go back and, and as data evolves about COVID-19, we're able to add questions to the database and have people input additional data. So for example, when we looked at the first data cut and saw the high mortality, but only 8% of patients were admitted to the ICU, we went back and asked investigators at their institution why. We actually found out that for a lot of institutions, that the reason being was because a cancer diagnosis was a reason not to have a patient with COVID-19 go to the ICU. There's also been a lot of data coming out on the impact of anticoagulation on uh, outcomes for patients with COVID-19. And so recently we added questions. We already had what therapies were they on at the time of diagnosis, but we're now looking at which of these patients were placed on prophylactic or therapeutic anticoagulation after their COVID diagnosis and how does that impact their outcome? So it's, it's a database that we're constantly modifying. Uh, Ross Sue in Singapore emailed us and said, well, we want to query patients and understand how COVID is impacting those patients. And so we're now working on a patient survey that'll launch through the TerraVault website. And so it, it's just been an amazing collaboration between friends who everyone just has a passion for understanding our patients and you know everyone is more than willing and able to contribute to this database and you know what we're particularly proud of is we've done it with no funding and it, which has been kind of cool for us and you know just showing what we are able to do as a group we are hopefully going to be getting some funding from ISLC just to help fund some of the data managers at sites that don't have money to pay for um, data entry or they don't have people or resources and they need to pay someone to do their data entry. But it, it's really been sort of uh, the passion of the thoracic community. And I also think it speaks volumes about how collaborative we are as a group. Well, I, I think part of this, and you know, it's sort of interesting. I would say that in a way what you've had is the funding of that that the infrastructure was there and i think it's what always has set oncology apart from the other specialties and i know even here when you know when it came to you know some of the uh studies on COVID, uh, and I've heard this from a lot of centers, it was oncologists that frequently lent, you know, support from clinical, their clinical research operations to, you know, help out. It's the fact that we've had this standing infrastructure for 50 years that, you know, clinical research is kind of in the DNA that people were able to do this. And so you sort of had the indirect funding of this standing infrastructure and knowledge of how to put this all together very quickly. And I think the other interesting fact is that, you know, the acuity of this and the intensity of this has been such that, you know, suddenly instead of a lot of people uh, uh, pontificating about you know, this review and that review, somehow, you know, they realized that that nobody wished to be protected from medical knowledge and progress, you know, and this is made for a much more flexible and I think real world approach to to things. So Solange in, in Switzerland, you know, how have you, I'm sure have been, well, you, you, you know, definitely been part of the TerraVault process, you know, and how have you found this uh, effort? 
so we have been seeing so many of these efforts. I think every country has, uh, and I think in the US, maybe every region, tries to collect a certain set uh, of data in order to describe it. And as we said before, to have some knowledge and some data before making assumptions, right? So of course we have a Swiss project, but I start to be a believer that to really get the multivariate analysis, meaning to be able to take into account all the diversity of the patients we treat and of the population in general, I adapt that not being together is a good way to move. I think the only way to be able to make uh, some, uh, to find some sense and, and to understand how diverse can be the different situation of all the patients we have, but also the general population, we need to be supranational, international, I wouldn't even say intercontinental. So Terabot is a good example focusing on lung cancer. But I've been working with ESMO and I, I must say the CCC19 that uh, Leora knows very well too, which is a US project with a database also located in Vanderbilt to try to understand how we can really be intercontinental. So we built a project in ESMO that we merge with the CCC19 in order to at least have a minimal number of uh, similar parameters to be collected. Uh, the CCC19 is covering the Americas large sense from Canada to South America, and ESMO is covering Europe and Asia. And knowing that we are all collecting data, knowing that the final aim of this is to get together at the end to make uh, the largest possible analysis of all the risk factors, treatments, and interferences that can be described. It will take some time, that's for sure. But I'm sure that these data and these efforts will be worse in building the way we collaborate in the future, but also maybe the way we will uh, kind of anticipate the next pandemic, the next coronavirus pandemic, who knows, that might happen to us or even the second wave, right? So it's of paramount importance to me. Just to go back to your questions before about are we going to change the way we are? And that might be my final word for me there, but... It's a good question. Are we going to change after that? It's interesting. I had a U.S. colleague in the corridor telling me that, is it true that in Europe we will stop kissing each other? Because, you know, every time we meet in the street, we kiss each other. Because he's from U.S. and he hates kissing each other because you do hugs in the U.S., right? Are we going to stop to kiss each other forever? Maybe. Are we going to implement a kind of a remote consultation forever? Because it's obviously evident, easier for patients? Are we going to uh, stop flying everywhere for nothing? And I speak to all of us, you, me, uh, Marty, Laura, are we going to stop flying for every single meeting in Taiwan or in uh, South America? Or I, are we going to adopt another life? And I'm still wondering what is the answer. Maybe the answer is I hope so, to a certain extent, trying to keep the best out of what we have been learning. But I'm still not convinced because human being is sometimes made of habitudes, right? Even concerning trips and so on, travels and so on. But I hope so, yeah. Maybe we could stop kissing each other, but also make the life of our patients a little easier in parallel. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting thing. You know, I don't know how telehealth was working in Europe before this, but, you know, once again, that was something that we you know, people, there were various pilot projects about it, but there were always issues about getting reimbursement. So, you know, what was telehealth like in 
Europe is pretty broad. I mean, even, you know, say within Switzerland and whatever else, you know, because there are many different healthcare systems there beforehand. And, and how has this transformed telehealth uh, in Europe and then, you know, Solange? Mm. You know, in Europe, in Switzerland and many countries, it was really not something we were uh, kind of... Uh, proposed to do from the training to the practice, right? We had really no incentive to move this way for billing reasons, because it needs uh, to systematize something which was not usually done. It's not easy. And the other thing is we had this idea from the past that nothing is better than seeing a patient to understand how he's doing. I think now we have a little more technologies to be able to listen to the patient, but many, very often also see the patient see a lesion through a webcam or something. So I think we have forgotten to move with the time and the technology. And uh, by catching up by obligation now, I hope we could also catch up in how we build and how we implement the recognition of this uh, teleconsultation. Because remember at the time being in a clinical trial, for example, we are far from having it accepted as per principle, right? So we need also to move a little bit uh, the way we consider the value of doing some things face-to-face, -face, but some other things or time-to-time, -time, not face-to-face, -face, but uh, from distance. And uh, in general, I think having cancer patients visiting less the hospital is good for the mood and is good for COVID, but in the winter time, it will be good for influenza. So I think that's really something we should further consider and, and, and put in our algorithm uh, and guidelines in the future. But at the time being, it's not. So, Leora, how about you? How's, uh, you said you had moved a number of things to telehealth. How has that worked? Yeah, it, it, it seems to be dependent on the tumor type. And I don't know if Solange or you've experienced this and the patients. You know, one of my breast cancer colleagues is almost exclusively doing telehealth. And then her patients like it because they'll do their telehealth visit with, with her one day. And then another day they come in for their labs and infusions. So it's cutting out about an hour waiting time on the days that they come in for their infusions. We've done it on our select patients and uh, I've done it for patients, for example, who have a post-op with the surgeon for telehealth. And then I'll talk to them about adjuvant chemotherapy via telehealth so that they know what to expect when they come a few weeks later. Where I haven't liked telehealth is for symptomatic patients. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had some symptomatic patients and who've called in and you can't always figure out what's going on via telehealth. And, you know, there's one example that sticks in my mind, a patient of mine who was headaches, nausea, dizziness, and we thought it was his brain metastases. And it went on for a few days and he wasn't getting better on steroids. And finally, after some coaxing, he, advised, he agreed to come in through the ER where he was in tamponade and almost coded. And those are the things that we're not going to capture on telehealth. So I think there is a role for telehealth, but it's select. And the other thing that we've experienced here, or I personally have is, you know, I miss hugging and kissing my patients. And, you know, not that I'm kissing my patients, but hugging my patients. <laughs> um, but I, I, what, what I also have having a hard time is getting all their outside scans. And for patients with metastatic disease, we say, yep, get your scans locally, send, the, send them to us. And then it takes two weeks for the scans to arrive and for radiology to look at them. So it, there's a lot of anxiety on the patient's part on waiting to know what's going on with my cancer. Whereas if they came into the cancer center, I would know the results 30 minutes after their scan and we could sit down and talk. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm kind of happy to sort of hear that because I'm I'm a little skeptical. I mean, I think that there's some very good uses for telehealth, and I'd say probably I don't know 10, 15 percent of it. Well, it's about 15 percent overall in my department. Again, there's been this wide variation depending upon specialties, but you know, for a, a new patient, particularly one with advanced disease, it seems to me difficult that you're going to be able to get the same discussion across, uh, you know, involving, you know, drugs that have rather, you know, difficult side effects at times and, you know, and a difficult diagnosis and to do that, you know, even even with video. Also, you know, many of the patients are older, they don't deal very well with, you know, videos, they don't, you know, have that ability. And then, like you po- pointed out, you know, for sicker patients, you know, the fact of doing a real physical exam simply does not get replaced uh, by the telehealth visit. So, you know, I'm happy to see that it's not just because I'm older and set in my ways, but, uh, you know, the hugs, um, I mean, I have to say in my, you know, prior uh, employer, I, I had a wonderful nurse practitioner who worked with me for 15 years. And I used to say, it's like, she does the hugs, just leave me alone, you know, but uh, so I'm not the touchy feely type, but <laughs> I, I, you know, there's, I do like to feel the ankle and say, you know, how long has your ankle been swollen? You know, oh yeah, two days. You know, I mean, it's amazing how many DVTs, you know, one picks up over the years that, uh, you know, otherwise weren't noted. So I, I think, you know, there's a value to telehealth. And I think in particular, sometimes it, uh, you know, helps us, you know, with certain symptoms. So if we've done a, uh, a modification for, you know, patient, uh, you know, in a pain regimen or such, you know, to be able to check in two days later and find out if it's working before the weekend, I think is potentially quite valuable. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, definitely uh, something of a mixed situation. So let me ask you, Solange, you know, during this, in the United States, I think everybody decreased their accruals to trials. Some places closed them down almost entirely. Some people restricted to only very narrow uh, therapeutic uh, studies, such as those with specific, you know, targeted therapies. And now we're beginning to kind of go back up. How did we, your, what have you done with clinical trials, uh, you know, at the beginning, the middle, and what seems to be now that you're coming somewhat back to normal there in Switzerland? Well, we had to face, it depends a little bit on the type of clinical trials. So we had to face, of course, a kind of a, a frozen situation for all new trials with no openings, that's for sure. So something which has uh, has remained uh, uh, absolutely the same for some months for the portfolio of clinical trials. But for the ongoing clinical trials, I must say that we were forced by the pharma industry in many European countries, and it was defined at the country level to uh, stop all uh, new enrollments in many of these uh, uh, pharma-sponsored trials. So that's something that we have to to follow, and uh, we don't see now any official announcement that this uh, enrollment will just restart uh, immediately or or in some some days. So it will take a little more time that people find that the healthcare system can adopt or can adapt itself again to uh, host new patients in clinical trials. I hope it's just some weeks, but it's still not the case. But I think we need to keep in mind in oncology that when we speak about large phase two or large phase three trials, it's also about access to treatments, right? So to a certain extent, many of these visits for clinical trials 
for a patient who is, of course, already enrolled, mean receiving a treatment that anyway would be given at the same pace with the same kind of visits, but outside of the innovation of the clinical trial. So in terms of bringing more of the patients in, or even in terms of giving or giving rise to a higher risk for the patient in terms of COVID, I'm not convinced that for many of these clinical trials, it's really a risk. The only importance is to give the best chances against cancer. So I think here in many uh, occasions for large phase two and phase three, I was happy to be able to continue to deliver the same experimental treatment. And for some countries, a patient had to resign a consent, telling that they have understood the risk because they are in a clinical trial and COVID is around. But the main risk to me, again, is about the cancer and probably not the fact that anyway they come every three weeks for the delivery of a certain treatment for metastatic non-smocellar cancer, for example. Where probably the limit has to be spoken out is for proof of principle of phase one, one B, early phase two trials, where you decide to deliver to patients a substance where you're not absolutely sure about the efficacy. And I think for legitimate ethical reason, this will be the later one to open again, right? Because uh, in terms of risk benefit here, you are more in the risk than the benefit. But for all the other one, oncology is special. We are doing clinical trials to grant access to many treatment opportunities. So that's really sometimes a priority to continue to think about. Leora? No, I, I, I agree with what Solange has said. You know, here at our institution, we have recently reopened trials. There are trials that are closed because of the companies, but some of our investigator-initiated trials and some of the, interestingly, the phase one trials have reopened. Many of those trials are requiring us to test patients prior to enrolling them. And it's interesting, some of the trials are adding in COVID testing regularly on study. But it, we do have to think about trials and how what we're offering to our patients and how we're offering them to our patients. Because COVID is the pandemic we have now, but there will be something else that comes along next. And we have to be adaptable. We have to be fluid in, in how we're thinking about and treating our patients. So, you know, I think you you put it well before, which is, you know, there's a pandemic of lung cancer, you know, to begin with, and, and that will remain, you know, even when this is passed. And I think my view, we, we had, you know, certainly slowed down our accrual dramatically, you know, for about four weeks or so, and have now resumed accrual to pretty much all of our trials. And, you know, I, I would take, I'd say, a little bit of exception about phase one. I think the use of an experimental drug in patients that have no good standard of care options is probably a more reasonable and ethical thing than giving somebody a drug that you know doesn't work, or let's put it this way, you know, may have modest, you know, occasional, you know, benefit and, uh, you know, but for somebody who's in otherwise good condition who wishes to be treated and is not really a, yet the appropriate patient for supportive care alone, or at least is unwilling to accept that. And, you know, I, I can't help but reflect that with, you know, as far as lung cancer drugs are concerned, with the sole exception of cisplatinum, every other drug that we use has been experimental during my professional career. And I think also many of our studies, you know, even our, you know, most of our early phase studies these days involve drugs where I think 
our opportunities for success are substantially higher than they've been in the past. And, you know, and particularly with any of the specific molecularly targeted agents, you know, let's remember that many studies went from phase one to approval of the agent, you know, in a very short period of time. So I think the world has changed a little bit with that and, you know, we need to kind of get things going, but, but clearly the nature of the studies, as we pointed out, the elimination of many of these unnecessary and, you know, burdensome requirements on both the patients and the physicians and, and research staff, you know, can be eliminated and really get at the core of the trials, which is, you know, what's the primary endpoint? Is there a efficacy? Is it better in, in one respect or another than the existing treatments? So, you know, fair amount that's there. I think we're beginning to get close to the end of this Solange, any last thoughts that you have about, you know, the state of lung cancer care, cancer care in general in this uh, new uh, era? Yeah. A, a last thought maybe is we are producing more than than ever manuscripts, early manuscripts, early data sets. And you probably, like me, are reading manuscripts which were not submitted to the usual peer review process because we would like to know very fast what's happening. So all of these behaviors are correct because we need to be flexible and adapt. But it would be very interesting, and I invite you to think about it with me later on. Once everything will be calmer and the coronavirus will have gone, we will probably have to revisit all this literature, one article after the other one, to try to make a final kind of guideline manuscript about how to handle a viral pandemic, right? Because beyond this COVID-1, we can potentially now dictate some principles that might serve the future, whatever happens. Leora? It sounds like Solange is coming up with another paper we're going to have to work on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in some months. Always, always happy to help. Yeah, you know, you know I, I agreed. You know, we, we, need to, we need to realize what's happening now and prepare for our future and for the future of our patients so we can continue to treat them and take care of them. So, if something like this happens again, we don't have to pause. We can say, here's what we know we need to do. Yeah, I, this is what we termed when my former life in the Navy, you know, the after action report. You know, we need to look at what was done right, what was done wrong. You know, it's interesting because at the beginning of all of this, I, somebody called my attention to a long uh, paper of how to deal with this that came from the Canadians. And it was looking really at there. They just had dusted off what they had prepared for, I think it was one of the flu epidemics uh, about five, 10 years ago. And, you know, because this is going to happen again, you know, this is not the first coronavirus, you know, problem that's been out there. It's at least the third in the last 20 years. And we can be fairly certain that more of them will come. So, I think in closing, thank you again, Drs. Horn and Peters. You've taken a great deal of your time at this very busy era, you know, so very busy period in medicine and taking the time to talk to us on this podcast today. Please take care of yourselves. Thanks to everybody. And thank you to our listeners for this podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.